Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm really looking forward to finishing off uh, these readings and reflections in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. I was speaking with one of the men from church this week, and we were both saying how edifying it has been um, to work slowly through these chapters. And he was saying that as we've been reading, he just has been encouraged to read more. He wants to spend more time with Jesus, to get to know Jesus more deeply. And that's what I'm praying for all of us as we read these last few verses together now, that God would lead us into deeper fellowship with the Lord Jesus. And I found it really helpful for me in the last week, reflecting on these verses and on the last two chapters of Matthew's Gospel, to look through the lens of Psalm 23 I think it's a really helpful way to see clearly what these chapters say about who we are and who Jesus is and what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus. So let me read for us the end of Matthew chapter 9 from verses 35 to 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is God's word. And as we come to the end of Matthew chapter 9, we find ourselves once again like members of that great crowd that has been following Jesus around since his Sermon on the Mount. And several times we're told the perspective of the crowds on Jesus, their amazement at the way that he teaches and the authority with which he heals. But now in these final few verses, we hear Jesus' perspective on the crowds. Jesus looks out upon the multitudes. It's kind of like he's looking out over humanity and he sees people as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Or through the lens of Psalm 23, Jesus sees the crowds as those who are living in the darkest valley, or as the older translations say, in the valley of the shadow of death. And in that valley, there is no one to protect them. There's no one to guide them. There's no one to feed them or to nourish them. And that's a fitting summary, isn't it, of all of the different people we've met who have come to Jesus in these chapters. The leper, the Gentiles, those possessed by demons or those cast out to the fringes of society, those who are diseased and even those who have died. I think that was the reality of human life in the first century. The shadow of death was cast over everything. And do you know the same is true of the 21st century? Of course, we try to drive back the shadow by turning up the brightness on our iPhones, but our lives too are lived in that same valley. We're not exempt from the universal pain of cancer diagnoses of struggles with mental health, of betrayal by our friends or breakdown in our families, of disappointing jobs or abusive bosses or a hundred other adversities. But there's even more to it than that. One writer says there is something beneath all of these concrete examples of adversity 
There is for all of us living between the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two, a pervasive futility shot through everything. Our minds, our hearts, our consciences, every thought and word and meeting and class and exam and email and rising to another day. There's something hard to articulate that infects it all. A sense of loss, of frustration, of non-flourishing, of shutdown, of daily grinding aimlessness, of spinning our wheels, of constantly hitting a wall. Do you ever have that funny feeling that things are just not right? Well, that's because our lives are lived in the valley of the shadow of death. And the valley of the shadow is not a place that we occasionally dip into in moments of suffering from our otherwise smooth existence. The valley is our home address. And that's a good thing to remember as we hear the repeated and joyful refrain that things will soon be going back to normal. Well, here Matthew gently reminds us that the normal place of human existence is one shot through with frustration, frustration with our broken bodies, with broken relationships and with our broken hearts. We find ourselves alienated from each other and we're often even alienated within ourselves. And at the heart of all of this is our our alienation from God. Matthew doesn't pull any punches in these chapters depicting the harsh realities of human suffering, nor does he leave us in any doubt that all of that suffering is deeply tied up with the problem of human sin. That is our deepest reality. That is our biggest problem. We're in the valley because we are far from the love of God. We're in the valley of the shadow because we have run from the light of God. We're in the valley of the shadow of death because we are cut off from the life of God. We're in the valley and without God, there is no one to guide us, no one to protect us, no one to feed us or to nourish us. We're harassed and helpless. And though sometimes we try to, you know, put on a a good face to it or keep up a squeaky clean facade, well, Jesus sees beyond all of that. He sees beyond our false bravado and knows exactly what we are like. And yet, wonderfully, it's in that place of helplessness that Jesus moves out to meet with us. Because if Matthew chapter 8 and 9 vividly depict the beginning of Psalm 23 verse 4, they also gloriously describe the fulfillment of the second half of that verse. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the psalmist says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Week by week, we've been hearing the things that Jesus said in both his words of teaching and his words of healing. We've seen what he did, calming the storm, casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, forgiving sin. All these things are summarized in verse 35 of chapter 9. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And all of these words and actions of Jesus are building up this picture for us of who Jesus is. He is the creator who has become a part of his creation. He is the son of God with all authority over every spiritual evil. He is the long-awaited king in the family line of David. 
Why, as we look through the lens of Psalm 23, Jesus comes into focus as our Lord and our shepherd. The shepherd who joins us in the valley, not only to be with us in it, but to lead us through it. And so for those who need guidance, Jesus speaks the truth of God. To those who need protection, he casts out demons and stands against self-righteous religious leaders. To those wandering in sin, he clearly calls them to repentance. To those mired in suffering, he tenderly carries them to safety. This is what Jesus does because that's who Jesus is. He's the Lord. He's the shepherd. But Matthew chapter 9 takes us deeper still into uncharted territory because now we not only hear of Jesus' actions and of his identity, but we're also told about Jesus' heart. For how does Jesus feel as he looks out over the helpless crowds? Or to bring it closer to home, how does Jesus feel about you when he looks on your life, when he looks at you dealing with sin, Or as he sees the challenges you face in your suffering. Is Jesus indifferent towards you? Is he disappointed in you? Is he losing patience with you? Does he maybe even feel contempt for you? Well, look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will teach us that all of our corrupt words and actions flow out of our sin-corrupted hearts. Well, Matthew chapters 8 and 9 teach us the glorious opposite of that truth. Everything Jesus says and does is the natural overflow of his gentle and humble heart that is moved with compassion for us. Jesus does not keep his distance from us in our suffering, and he's not even completely repulsed or turned away from us by our sin. In Jesus, we see the goodness and love of God in flesh and bone following us into the valley of the shadow, chasing us down even to the point of his death. As one poet says, Jesus looks down on this sick and suffering world and he says to his father, let me go there. Let me be with them. Let me heal them. Let me forgive them. Let me die for them. Let me bring them home. See, here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just come to fix our problems for us. And he doesn't only come to forgive us our sins, as wonderful as that is. Jesus comes to carry us safely into his kingdom, that we might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And again, we see this as we look through the lens of Psalm 23. Jesus, our Lord and shepherd, doesn't just wipe our slates clean. He sets a table for us in the presence of our enemies. It's like he clothes us with his very best and welcomes us to the heavenly feast. To all who come to him in the pages of Matthew 8 and 9 and in every subsequent page of human history, Jesus leads them to the green pastures of God's presence, to the soul-refreshing quiet waters poured out in the Holy Spirit, to the right path of following him. 
And so for me, the abiding image from these chapters is right tucked in there in the middle of chapters 8 and 9. It's that meal that Matthew, the tax collector, hosts with all of his sinner friends. I was speaking with someone else from church this week and we were saying how hard it can be sometimes to get excited about the hope of heaven. It can sometimes feel so abstract, so fuzzy compared to the concrete realities of everything that we experience here and now. But these chapters fill out for us our naturally fuzzy imaginations. Because what is heaven but a feast, face to face with Jesus? That's something that I can get excited about, talking and eating and drinking and laughing in the company of fellow forgiven sinners with the commanding and captivating presence of Jesus right there at the center of it all. That is the future hope for all who have their faith in Christ. But it's also a present reality. We get a foretaste of that heavenly feast, primarily, I think, in the honest fellowship that we share together in the here and now. I can think of no better image of what our church fellowship should look like than that dinner party where only sinners are welcome. See, there's no false bravado at that meal, is there? No one's trying to save face or trying to keep up a squeaky clean facade. Everyone is enjoying the freedom that comes from the fact that Jesus knows everything about us. And everyone is basking in the wonder of his free and full forgiveness. And that's what Jesus promises to us too. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. He promises his disciples in Matthew 18. And so as we look forward to resuming our face-to-face gatherings in the months ahead, wouldn't that be a great thing to pray for our church? That we'll not only see each other's faces when we meet together again, but that our community will be marked by the freedom and the grace that comes from knowing Jesus. That there will be a beauty in our relationships at St. Mark's that could only be explained by the fact that Jesus, our Lord and our shepherd, is among us. That our honest fellowship would be for all of us and to anyone who comes a foretaste of that heavenly feast. Now, those are bold prayers, aren't they? And that sort of aspiration seems a long way removed from the reality that we began with, that our lives are lived in the valley of the shadow of death. How is it possible that we could live with that sort of hope and joy in the face of all of life's funny feelings? Well, at this point, we need to launch out from Psalm 23. We need a new and different image to understand the new reality that we have as followers of Jesus. And so chapter 9 ends with Jesus describing the world to his disciples, not as a dark and fearful valley, but as a field ripe for harvest. The harvest is plentiful, he says, but the workers are few. Jesus' disciples can really fear no evil because he is with them, and in following his right path, they can be fruitful instead of frustrated. And in case you think that all of this is coming a little bit out of left field, and pardon the field pun, um, this is actually how Matthew introduced to us the ministry of Jesus all the way back in 
Matthew chapter 4. There, Matthew told us that Jesus came to fulfill an ancient prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah said, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Matthew is telling us we live in the valley of the shadow, but the light of Jesus now shines in the darkness. And so everything is different. The presence of Jesus doesn't just help us to cope with reality, but it completely transforms our reality. No longer are we just spiraling down towards death. Rather, we're on this new trajectory. We're on the same trajectory of Jesus, the path that goes through death and then into life. The path of suffering and then glory, of hard work now and of sometimes painful waiting, yet all in the anticipation of a glorious harvest. See, we're set out on this new path and we're given new power to live as Jesus calls us to live. And as we look again back through chapters Matthew 8 and 9, we see that this thread has been weaved the whole way through. Think of the leper who was made clean and then immediately sent to the temple so that he might obey the law. Or Peter's mother-in-law, cured from her fever, And she gets up to serve Jesus and his friends. The blind men were healed so they could see. The mute had their lips loosened and they could speak. Think of the paralyzed man who had his sins forgiven and he was given the power to pick up his mat and walk. And all of that is true for us. We are made clean from everything that defiles us and then we're sent out into the world to live the law of love to which Jesus has called us. In all of our frailty and frustration, Jesus makes it possible for us to serve him and serve his people. We too have new eyes now through which we can see the world. We can look upon the world with the same compassion and care that Jesus had for those crowds. And our mouths are opened as well that we might speak. Not first of all, do you notice to the people around us, but we can now speak to Jesus, the Lord of the harvest. Chapter 9 ends with an encouragement to pray in verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And sometimes he might send out others like these new Christian friends that Simon's friend met overseas. But often Jesus will turn to us and he will say, like he did to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Daughter, your sins are forgiven. Now pick up your mat and walk and work in the harvest so that others might come to me too. See, for all who come to Jesus in humble worship, to all who fall at his feet and confess their sins, Jesus gives us complete forgiveness for all that is past. He offers to us this unshakable hope for the future. And by his Holy Spirit, he gives us purpose and power for the present, for every day and every moment. And so whoever we are and wherever we are, We can say with the psalmist, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Amen.